In the winter of 2008, Corey, my wife and I participated in a three and a half day church planters assessment center. The experience was composed of different psychological testing and interviews and group projects and examples of my preaching, a presentation of my testimony, more interviews, more tests, repeat. Before going, Corey and I had a little idea of what it was going to be like. Uh, they told me several weeks before the event, for example, that I had to prepare a, a sermon to preach to everyone there. We were given various Myers-Briggs types tests, and we had to finish all those before the assessment. But other than that, they kind of kept us in the dark as to what to expect when we showed up. I think that was part of the plan. So we got there and were placed in group projects separate from our spouses and given little or no instruction as to what the goals actually were. Um, each portion of the assessment would be unscripted from that point on. They had these people in clipboards behind mirrors and behind windows and we were told, uh, pretend they're not there. And so they're watching for something, but we weren't told what they're watching for. And what we found out in retrospect is that everything, I mean everything in that assessment was meant to be a test. I mean, from the moment we got there, they're watching our body language and how you interact with each other and how you interact with other people. They want to find out if you have what it takes to plant a church and to pastor a church and to do it with the Evangelical Covenant Church and to do it in a way that's going to last. This evening, we're going to focus on the story that Ashley read, wonderfully by the way, moments earlier, from Genesis 18. And in many ways, that story in Genesis 18 is about some tests. It's said that God tests us both to inform our faith and to transform our faith. Another way of saying that is that every circumstance in life is an opportunity to prove our faith or to improve our faith. So here's an example. My two-year-old's having a particularly rebellious day, looks at me in the face and dumps her hot chocolate on the table. What are you going to do about it? Now, I have some, <laughs> I have some things I could do. I have some ways I could react. I could blow up and get really ticked off at her. Um, or I could control my emotions and try and discipline her in a way that is for her own good and not out of personal revenge and just wanting to <laughs> lay the smack down. Whatever I do proves my character. If I blow up, well, then I'm the type of guy who blows up. If I do it under control, then that proves that character. And Whatever I do is an opportunity to improve my character. So if I make the right decision, it reinforces that. It becomes more of a habit. If I make the wrong decision, it forms my character in the other direction. Now, in the story we're focusing on this evening, there are three main tests that God presents before Abraham and Sarah. And one of the fascinating things, I think, to look at as we're exploring this text is... What types of tests is God putting them through? You can tell a lot about God by the tests he puts them through, right? Because God is only going to test people on the things that are important to him. So maybe an interesting question to ask yourself before we get into the text is this. What tests would the God that you know put people through? What do you think is important to God? Your answer to that question is going to tell you a lot about how you think about God. All right? So, 
Let's enter the story and pay attention to the things that God is testing on or asking about. First, a little background. When Abraham was 75 years old, God appeared to him. God told Abraham to leave his country, to leave his extended family, his roots, and travel to an unknown land almost a thousand miles away. Abraham was married to Sarah, who was 65 at the time, and at that time this was a mature couple who could not have children of their own. Yet God made a promise that he would bless Abraham, and through Abraham and Sarah's descendants, he's going to bless the entire world. And so years go by, and various life adventures present themselves, at which times Abraham and Sarah shine, and sometimes they fail miserably. But all through these epic tales of victory and failure, it's God who is the star of the stories. It's God that shows himself faithful and loyal and loving and just. In the last chapter um, from last week, we saw God appear yet again to Abraham and Sarah, nearly 24 years after his initial promise. 24 years later, and still no child of their own. 24 years later, and still Abraham, although now quite wealthy, is still a nomad, wandering the land, waiting, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham and Sarah. He said, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation and a mother of nations and kings. You're going to produce offspring, and that offspring is going to be the rescue, be the blessing to the world. Now, it's in the normal, mundane, day after day living life, it's in the waiting that God often shows up. And that's what we have here in Genesis 18. God appears to Abraham. That's the scene. Verse 1. The narrator sets the scene for us. Abraham is resting in the noonday sun. Typical ancient Near Eastern work style. You work in the morning, noon comes around, you rest in the shade of your tent flaps. Kind of think, think siesta, for those of you who are familiar with maybe Latin, more Latin culture. <coughs> so he's relaxing. Now, the fun thing about this story is that the narrator is kind of giving us a little wink on the side. The narrator is going to give you and I a little information that Abraham and Sarah don't have. And what the narrator tells us is that it is actually the Lord, God, who is showing up to meet with Abraham. For the first part of the story, Abraham just thinks, eh, this is uh, three visitors, three guys coming along. And so we have this special knowledge that Abraham doesn't have. At first glance, three travelers show up. But we know that God is visiting. Now, in the ancient Near East, there were expected protocols... For entertaining strangers. First, it was expected that when travelers came to your home, you would at least offer them a place of rest, some refreshments, to wash their feet, and most of all, you would protect their honor. Okay? Let's see how Abraham passes this test. Abraham ran. He gets up and runs. First of all, grown men, let alone heads of household in the ancient areas, don't typically run. It's not very cool. So he runs to meet the travelers. He bows down before them. He didn't know where they were from or necessarily what their status was or even if they had any status. But he showed them respect and he showed them deference. Then he offers them rest. 
foot washing and some bread. In those days, it was it was common to offer somebody a light meal because if you offered them an extravagant banquet, what they would do is say, oh no, I can't accept that because that would make them look like a, a glutton. So what you do is offer them a modest meal and then they would say, oh sure, we'll stay for a little bread, a little water. And then in the background, you would offer them, you'd be cooking a big meal and you'd bless them. Well, Abraham does this, but he goes over the top. He runs in to tell Sarah, who was politely doing her thing inside the tent. Women weren't supposed to come out and meet with strange men. So she's inside. She says, quick, prepare a, a siah, a fine flour. That's 11 quarts of flour. So there's one, two, three visitors, Abraham and Sarah. And he's preparing enough bread made out of 11 quarts of flour. That's a lot of food. Abraham himself, not a hired hand, runs out to the flock. He, he picks... Uh, a choice calf, not just any old piece of meat, but the, the choice calf. And he does it himself. Furthermore, it was extravagant to serve meat. Like, that wasn't in the daily diet. Like, for most of us, we, if you're a meat eater, you probably eat meat a lot. And it, that just wasn't the way it was in this world. So to even serve meat at all was a special thing. And he, he picks this really choice piece of meat. He gives it to his servant to prepare. He also put before them milk and curds, kind of like this yogurt stuff, which was kind of a staple of their diet. And finally, the story tells us that Abraham served this fine meal and stands back while they eat. That is like the quintessential perfect host in the ancient Near East. Let the guests banquet. You kind of hold back, make sure that they have everything they need. Well, I find this first episode fascinating on multiple levels, not least... Because of the type of test that God gives Abraham and Sarah. It's fascinating to me because I think um, most often the people I talk with function as if God were some kind of moral police. If we had to guess what kind of test God would give the person, like Abraham, whom he was planning on saving the world through, maybe we would uh, uh, think that God would give him a test of integrity. Maybe we'd think, okay, if God's going to test this future leader of the world, uh, maybe he would put a dollar bill on the sidewalk and see if Abraham would pick up the dollar and try and find its owner if he would pocket it himself. Right? Or maybe uh, God would want to test his, uh, his integrity to his marriage relationship. And so he would have an angel dis uh, disguised as like a damsel in distress with a broken down camel on the side of the desert road and see if Abraham would fall into lust or something like that. Or, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Maybe God would spy on Abraham and see if he had a regular quiet time and was in his scriptures enough and prayed every day. Sex and not telling lies and quiet times. Those are things that we typically get obsessed with in North American Christianity. Don't get me wrong. Misuse of sex and lack of integrity and not ever praying and reading your Bible, that, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. But that's not what God is testing Abraham on here. God seems to be very interested in Abraham's hospitality and his generosity. Two qualities highly esteemed throughout all of Scripture and two qualities that express God's character throughout Scripture. The person God chooses to save the world needs to be a person of hospitality and generosity. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham uh, that he's going to bless him so that so that Abraham will be a blessing to the entire 
world. And that's exactly what he does in the story. Abraham is blessed with wealth and influence and a relationship with the living God. And even the supposed strangers, uh, even when these strange men show up at his door, he just goes all out. He doesn't care who they are. He says, you know, I've got a lot of stuff here and I've got influence and wealth. I'm going to bless their socks off. It doesn't matter who they are. He pours out the welcome. He pours out more than just food and stuff. He pours out respect. He pours out generosity. And all that is summed up in this term, hospitality. Now, several weeks ago, I talked about how we can read these narratives in a way. Um, and I, I, I argued that God didn't put these stories here about Abraham and Sarah into the Bible so that we would say, okay, I'm supposed to either not be like Abraham or I'm supposed to be just like Abraham. That would get us into a lot of trouble. In fact, uh, a long time ago, Corey and I led a high school youth youth group down to Mexico for a, a short-term mission trip, and um, some of the local girls down there were kind of interested in me, and they were kind of interested in, you know, finding out who Corey was. And so um, I tried to communicate that, you know, she was my... Uh, Esposa, my, my wife, but I, I got it all wrong. And I said, no, she's my hermana. And uh, so they're like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're free. And Corey was not happy about that. And, and nor did Corey say, oh, it's okay, because Abraham did that in the Bible. He, he said his wife was his sister. All right, that, that doesn't work. And, and I don't think these stories are here so um, we necessarily say, okay, I'm, I'm not supposed to be like Abraham, because Abraham, like in this story, does a lot of great things. I think there's a third way to look at these stories. And that is to see what God is up to. What do these stories tell us about, about God and God's character and what is actually important to Him? And what we see, I think, is that God highly values hospitality. What's that? What comes to your mind when you say hospitality? For me, having people over. Making them feel comfortable, and that's certainly an aspect of hospitality. More than that, hospitality is making others feel and actually be included into your life and into your community. God came to earth as Jesus and died that we might have fellowship with him. That we might have right relationship with him forever. That's hospitality. And like Abraham, those of us who follow Jesus are promise bearers, keepers of the covenant. We have good news that God loves you, that he wants you in his family, and he will renew all things. Hospitality is entertaining strangers, not just people who are like us or have our own, our same exact political views. They're not, it's not just having people over who will advance your social status. Or having people over that are just always easy to get along with. Hospitality is about how we show the love and care of God to other people. That's why if you pray with me uh, at 4.30 for the pre-service prayer, which I highly recommend you do, uh, I almost always pray that lettered streets, that our community would be known, that it would be felt as a place of hospitality. In fact, uh, if you're a parent of one of the, the kids in the older class, um, Corey is, in part of her lesson, she's going to give every kid a mallard's buck. 
And they're supposed to share that mallard's buck, not with a brother or sister or mom and dad or even one of their friends at Sunday school. They're supposed to share that mallard's buck with maybe a kid in their class or a kid that they, a neighbor who, um, you know, they can extend that sharing and that love with. So parents, beware of that and uh, ask them about that after church. Hospitality. Showing care for neighbors, like the neighborhood cleanup we do. It's supporting the mission. It's, it's supporting the food bank. It's many of the ways that you volunteer. But it's much more than just who you are in your home or how you volunteer or even how often you talk to visitors at church. It's a spirit of generosity. It's how you carry yourself at work or in your circles of play. Or at school. It's, it's offering the good wine to the bachelor you have over for dinner just as you would to your boss and his wife whom you're trying to impress. Now, I'm going to skip the middle part of chapter 18 and we're going to come back to that, all right? So we've, we've seen God and these three visitors show up to Abraham's pad and he gives them lavish hospitality. And so after the meal, um, God has a conversation with, with his angels, and we learn that he's going to include Abraham, the promise bearer, in his plan to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's going to investigate whether or not he should bring judgment to this place. And, and it's said that God knows Abraham. He, he's intimate with him. He, um, he knows his deep thoughts and he knows his heart. And he, ch- he tells the angels that he chose Abraham so that Abraham would teach his descendants, the promise bearers, righteousness and justice. Two extremely foundational words in scripture and two words that are often misunderstood today. Both words have to do with right relatedness. The first, righteousness or ascetic, means social right-relatedness. It has to do with standing up against social oppression, as common as racism and name-calling all the way up to physical abuse and genocide. It can be large-scale issues like ethnic cleansing, or it can be small things like how you treat the new guy at work or, or how you interact with the awkward girl who is in the high school class. And it, it, it's, it's a very personal thing and it's a very global thing. The second term, justice, or mishpat, has more to do with justice in the marketplace and in the courtroom and and, and justice in authority. In the ancient Near East, for example, when you go to market, uh, there are these scales. And so you'd be like, I don't know, an omer of this would cost this much silver. And you can manipulate those scales so that you weren't getting the right value of grain per money. Well, if you're rich, you can absorb that loss. You may not know it. But if you're poor... You don't have much margin. You don't have much margin to absorb that loss. And so it's always the poor in, in these unjust market systems that, uh, uh, that lose out big time. Uh, in this day, uh, bribing judges was just such a big, huge deal. And if you had enough social status, you could get your way against someone who was, say, a slave class or someone who was a foreigner. And God is deeply disturbed about these forms of injustice and unrighteousness. Well, by now in the story, Abraham has figured out that these are no ordinary visitors. So he listens. Nice stance to have when God's talking. And God tells him that the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. The sense, um, the sense here is that the city is actually crying out with this voice 
for the voiceless. It's the cries of the oppressed and the powerless that reach the ears of God. God sees and hears what the corrupt try to keep quiet with lies and deception and even murder. So the city cries out to God, convicting the inhabitants, and God sends two witnesses to go check it out themselves on God's behalf. Two witnesses to go see what the situation really is. And if he finds that it really, truly is exceedingly grave sin, he's going to bring it to ruin, to judgment. Now, I know the whole idea of God and judgment is a difficult one. We're going to devote next week in chapter 19 to that, so yippee on that. Uh, Come back for that sermon. But this evening, what we're focusing on is, is Abraham's reaction to this. Abraham's reaction to God's testing and God's character. And Abraham passes the test big time by acting with compassion. He intercedes on behalf of the city. He begins with an appeal to God's graciousness and justice. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous in the city? Would you, would you destroy them all if you found 50 righteous people? 50 is roughly the size of maybe half of an average city. They're, they're not very big places. When you say city, um, you're only talking of maybe a few hundred at most. Typically, maybe around 100. So what, what if half the people are righteous? Are you going to really destroy the whole thing? God says, no, no, not, not if they're 50. Abraham, again, out of compassion, but with boldness, is like, well, you know, while I've got your ear, I hope you're not mad, but you know, what if there's 45 and 40? Well, what if there's 30? Okay, you won't destroy it if there's 30? How about 20? Now, now, don't be mad. You said you wouldn't do it if there's 20. How about if there's 10? If there's 10 righteous people in the whole city, would you really destroy it then? God says, no, I, I won't destroy it if there's 10. And then he says, we better stop having this conversation. Um, Abraham passes this test. His nephew Lot lives around Sodom, like right around the gate. He's not really a citizen there, but he, he hangs out with those dudes. And you notice that Abraham doesn't intercede on behalf of Lot specifically. Like, he doesn't just pray because he has a family member there. His heart is a compassion, uh, a heart of compassion for the whole place, for all the people. He intercedes out of this heart of compassion. So often I hear Christians talking about how bad things are, about how um, secular things are becoming, and about how, you know, judgment's just going to come and smack it up in the side of the head. And it's almost like they're excited about it. But how often do we pray on behalf of our city or the cities of the world? How often are we praying for mercy on our country and on the countries of the world? The heart of the promise bearer, the promise bearer of good news, you know, the heart that God wants to develop in us as his followers is the heart of compassion. The heart of blessing to the entire world. Not sitting back and saying, I can't wait, they're going to burn. No, it's a heart of engagement. And that brings us to the center section of our chapter, the section we skipped earlier. Verses 9 through 15 sit between these episodes of hospitality and intercession, like the peanut butter on the sandwich. Everything sticks together because of this center section. 
In fact, the other stories, I think, kind of spin off into meaninglessness without this central section. So in the story, the visitors ask Abraham a very important question. They ask, where is Sarah? Now, we know because the narrator told us at this point in the story that these visitors are God and his, his, his angels, his entourage. So it's like, well, you know where she is. But for Abraham's sake, if he, even if he thinks these are just three visitors, they still know where she is because they're waiting for the meal. They know that his wife cooked the meal. This isn't so much a question then of where is physical Sarah? What's her GPS location right now? It's more of a rhetorical question. And it, it, because this is in Genesis, it should make us think of two other episodes. In the garden, when God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? I think God doesn't know where they are. No, he wants to know where they are. And when he asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? Do you think the God of the universe doesn't know? Now he wants to know from Cain what's going on. Where is your wife Sarah? Where is Sarah with her faith in the midst of all of this? Well, you can guess where Sarah is and who could blame her? She's barren. She's 24 years past a promise made by God about a huge blessed family. And you know, all she has to show for it is some mocking boy of her slave girl named Ishmael. And then God says to Abraham, to Abraham, but politely for Sarah, who is listening right behind the flap of the, dent, the tent door, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, that means listen up. Sarah, your wife, will have a son. For the first time, the promise has a time guarantee. I can live with just about anything for a year if I know for a fact relief is going to come. Give me a date, I'll, I'll focus on that. It is very difficult to live in ambiguity. 24 years of living with this promise, you don't know when it's coming or if it'll ever come. But now she has a date on the calendar. Well, to add to the tension, the narrator then has this aside. Oh, remember, they're very old. Yeah, like we got that, the 99 and all this stuff. And the narrator even tells us, literally in the Hebrew, that Sarah is past menopause. She can not have children. So she does what we all do when you're in the face of just hopelessness. You, you laugh. You know what we do? How many times have you heard or have you said, it's all I could do but laugh? I mean, just ridiculous. Oh, I got pulled over, I got a ticket today, and then, um, you know, I slammed my hand in the car and uh, was late to work. <laughs> it's all you can do but laugh. That's why that's an expression, because it's true. And here's Sarah, I mean, I just hear her laughing in resignation. Like, she's not being a brat or anything. I mean, she's just like, <laughs> what? Look at me. And God says, well, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too difficult for God? Is anything too wonderful for God? That's the question. That's the question. That's the peanut butter in the scripture sandwich. It's holding everything together. Is anything too wonderful for God? You know what? If this world, the way we perceive it normally, is all there is, if we're living in a closed system with limited resources... 
if we are slaves to our own works, then we are in a world of hurt. You better go somewhere else. This is not worth your time. If this is all there is, and it's entirely up to us to fix it, then hospitality and generosity and praying for others, that makes no sense unless you can use it to manipulate some kind of power or prestige or something. If this is it, it all that I see, then I'm going to discriminate. Then I'm going to not be generous. I'm going to hoard what I have. I won't waste my time praying about the world or trying to reach out to others. If this is it, then it's all about me and my world, and it's all about you and yours. Abraham and Sarah were resigned to their fate as old, barren people. But God made them a promise. And when God makes a promise, the rules of the universe bend to his will. Amen? When God makes a promise, the rules of the universe bend to his will. The laws of physics can change and seas can be divided so that a nation can walk through. The laws of astronomy can change and the sun and moon can stand still. The laws of chemistry can change and water can be turned into wine. The laws of biology can change and 99-year-old men can perform without Viagra. And barren women can give birth to nations. Amen? When God makes a promise, nothing is too wonderful for Him. God, through Jesus Christ, made you and I a promise. And this is where it matters. God made you and I a promise that through faith, when we confess our sin, He forgives. That when we repent of our sinful ways, He gives grace to follow Him. He includes us in His family. And that through this life of faith, we will inherit resurrected bodies that do not break down. And we will inherit God's kingdom He's going to remake it all into a world that does not decay. Into a world that is more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. That is the promise of everlasting life. That's the gospel. And that doesn't make any sense. And that's impossible. I'm just telling you how it is. But that's also the promise. And when God makes a promise, there is nothing too difficult for him. Nothing too wonderful. I leave us with that question. Because I'm, I'm a preacher. And that's what preachers do. is They preach. And I tell you what I think about stuff. You still got to wrestle with the question, and so do I. Is anything too wonderful for God? That's the question. Because the gospel is impossible. It doesn't make sense. It defies the laws of physics as we know them, everything. It doesn't make sense. 
you join me in prayer? Father, I'm thankful for this word, for this story. It causes us to wrestle with our faith and it causes us to wrestle with what we really think about you, the things that are important to you. And most foundationally, can you do the things that you say? Will you do the things that you say? Can we trust that? Is there anything too wonderful for you? Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray that you would release faith. That you would remove barriers and obstacles in our lives from, from believing the good news. That you really did die for us. That you really do forgive us. That through faith, there really is a future of resurrection and new life in a new world more beautiful and glorious than we could possibly imagine. 